0: Chapter twenty two of the Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, from which it will be seen that Martin became a lion of his own account, together with the reason why. As soon as it was generally known in the National Hotel that the young Englishman, mr Chuzzlewit, had purchased a location in the Valley of Eden, and intended to betake himself to that earthly paradise by the next steamboat, he became a popular character. Why this should be, or how it had come to pass, Martin no more knew than Mrs. Gamp of Kingsgate Street, High Holborn, did, but that he was for the time being the lion, by popular election, of the water-toast community, and that his society was in rather inconvenient request, there could be no kind of doubt. The first notification he received of this change in his position was the following epistle, written in a thin running hand, with here and there a fat letter or two, to make the general effect more striking, on a sheet of paper ruled with blue lines. National Hotel, Monday morning. Dear sir, when I had the privilege of being your fellow-traveller in the cars the day before yesterday, you offered some remarks upon the subject of the Tower of London, which— in common with my fellow citizens generally, I could wish to hear repeated to a public audience. As secretary to the Young Men's Water Toast Association of this town, I am requested to inform you that the Society will be proud to hear you deliver a lecture upon the Tower of London at their hall to-morrow evening at seven o'clock, and as a large issue of quarter-dollar tickets may be expected, your answer and consent by bearer will be considered obliging. Dear sir, yours truly, Lafayette Kettle. The Honourable M. Chuzzlewit. P.S. The Society would not be particular in limiting you to the Tower of London. Permit me to suggest that any remarks upon the elements of geology, or, if more convenient, upon the writings of your talented and witty countryman, the Honourable Mr. Miller, would be well received. Very much aghast at this invitation, Martin wrote back, civilly declining it. And had scarcely done so when he received another letter, number forty seven, Bunker Hill Street, Monday morning, private. Sir, I was raised in those interminable solitudes where our mighty Mississippi, or father of waters, rolls his turbid flood. I am young and ardent, for there is a poetry in wildness, and every alligator basking in the slime is in himself an epic, self-contained. I aspirate for fame. It is my yearning and my thirst. Are you, sir, aware of any member of Congress in England who would undertake to pay my expenses to that country, and for six months after my arrival? There is something within me which gives me the assurance that this enlightened patronage would not be thrown away, in literature or art, the bar, the pulpit or the stage. In one or other, if not all, I feel that I am certain to succeed. If too much to engage to write any such yourself, please let me have a list of three or four of those most likely to respond, and I will address them through the post-office. May I also ask you to favour me, with any critical observations that had ever presented themselves to your reflective faculties, on Cain, a mystery, by the Right Honourable Lord Byron. I am, sir, yours, forgive me if I add soaringly, Putnam Smith. P.S address your answer to america junior messrs hancock and floby dry goods store as above both of which letters together with martin's reply to each were according to a laudable custom much tending to the promotion of gentlemanly feeling and social confidence published in the next number of the water-toast gazette he had scarcely got through this correspondence when captain Kedgick, the landlord kindly came upstairs to see how he was getting on the captain sat down upon the bed before he spoke. Finding it rather hard, moved to the pillow. "'Well, sir,' said the captain, putting his hat a little more on one side, for it was rather tight in the crown. "'You are quite a public man, I calculate.' "'So it seems,' retorted Martin, who was very tired. "'Our citizens, sir,' pursued the captain, intend to pay their respects to you. You will have to hold a sort of levy, sir, while you are here.' "'Powers above!' cried Martin. "'I couldn't do that, my good fellow. "'I reckon you must, then,' said the captain. "'Must is not a pleasant word, Captain,' urged Martin. "'Well, I didn't fix the mother language, and I can't unfix it,' said the captain coolly. "'Else I'd make it pleasant. You must receive, that's all. But why should I receive people who care as much for me as I care for them, asked Martin? "'Well, because I have had a monument put up in the bar,' returned the captain. "'A what?' cried Martin. "'A monument,' rejoined the captain. Martin looked despairingly at Mark, who informed him that the captain meant a written notice that Mr. Chuzzlewit would receive the water-toasters that day, at and after two o'clock, which was in effect then hanging in the bar, as Mark, from ocular inspection of the same, could testify. "'You wouldn't be unpopular, I know,' said the captain, paring his nails. "'Our citizens aren't long a riling up, I tell you, and our gazette could flay you like a wild cat.' Martin was going to be very wroth, but he thought better of it, and said, "'In heaven's name, let them come, then.' "'Oh, they'll come,' returned the captain. "'I have seen the big room fixed a purpose with my eyes.' "'But will you,' said Martin, seeing that the captain was about to go, "'will you at least tell me, what do they want to see me for? What have I done? And how do they happen to have such a sudden interest in me?' Captain Kedjik put a thumb and three fingers to each side of the brim of his hat, lifted it a little way off his head, put it on again carefully, passed one hand all down his face, beginning at the forehead and ending at the chin, looked at Martin, then at Mark, then at Martin again, winked and walked out. Upon my life now, said Martin, bringing his hand heavily upon the table, such a perfectly unaccountable fellow as that I never saw. Mark, what do you say to this? Why, sir, returned his partner. My opinion is that we must have got to the most remarkable man in the country at last. So I hope there's an end to the breed, sir." Although this made Martin laugh, it couldn't keep off two o'clock. Punctually as the hour struck, Captain Kedgick returned to hand him to the room of state, and he had no sooner got him safe there than he bawled down the staircase to his fellow-citizens below, that Mr. Chuzzlewit was receiving. Up they came with a rush. Up they came until the room was full and through the open door a dismal perspective of more to come was shown upon the stairs. One after another, one after another, dozen after dozen, score after score, more, 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 up they came, all shaking hands with Martin, such varieties of hands, the thick, the thin, the short, the long, the fat, the lean, the coarse, the fine, such differences of temperature, the hot, the cold, the dry, the moist, the flabby, such diversities of grasps the tight, the loose, the short-lived, and the lingering. Still up, 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 more, 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 and ever anon the captain's voice was heard above the crowd. There's more below, there's more below. Now gentlemen, you that have been introduced to Mr. Chuzzlewit, will you clear, gentlemen, will you clear? Will you be so good as to clear, gentlemen, and make a little room for more?" Regardless of the captain's cries, they didn't clear at all, but stood there, bolt upright and staring. Two gentlemen, connected with the Water Toast Gazette, had come express to get the matter for an article on Martin. They had agreed to divide the labour. One of them took him below the waistcoat, one above. Each stood directly in front of his subject, with his head a little on one side, intent on his department. If Martin put one boot before the other, the lower gentleman was down upon him. He rubbed a pimple on his nose, and the upper gentleman booked it. He opened his mouth to speak, and the same gentleman was on one knee before him, looking in at his teeth, with the nice scrutiny of a dentist. Amateurs in the physiognomical and phrenological sciences roved about him with watchful eyes and itching fingers, and sometimes one, more daring than the rest, made a mad grasp at the back of his head, and vanished in the crowd. They had him in all points of view, in front, in three-quarter face, and behind. Those who were not professional or scientific, audibly exchanged opinions on his looks. New lights shone in upon him in respect of his nose. Contradictory rumours were abroad on the subject of his hair, and still the captain's voice was heard so stifled by the concourse that he seemed to speak from underneath a feather bed, exclaiming, "'Gentlemen, you that have been introduced to Mr. Chuzzlewit, will you clear?' Even when they began to clear it was no better. then a stream of gentlemen every one with a lady on each arm exactly like the chorus to the national anthem when royalty goes in state to the play came gliding in every new group fresher than the last and bent on staying to the latest moment if they spoke to him which was not often they invariably asked the same questions in the same tone with no more remorse or delicacy or consideration than if he had been a figure of stone purchased and paid for and set up there for their delight. Even when in the slow course of time these died off, it was as bad as ever, if not worse, for then the boys grew bold, and came in as a class themselves, and did everything that the grown-up people had done. Uncouth stragglers too appeared, men of a ghostly kind, who being in didn't know how to get out again, insomuch that one silent gentleman, with glazed and fishy eyes, and only one button on his waistcoat, which is a very large metal one, and shone prodigiously, got behind the door, and stood there like a clock, long after everybody else was gone. Martin felt, from pure fatigue and heat and worry, as if he could have fallen on the ground and willingly remained there, if they would but have had the mercy to leave him alone. But as letters and messages threatening his public denouncement if he didn't see the senders, poured in like hail, and as more visitors came while he took his coffee by himself, and as Mark, with all his vigilance, was unable to keep them from the door, he resolved to go to bed, not that he felt at all sure of bed being any protection, but that he might not leave a forlorn hope untried. He had communicated this design to Mark, and was on the eve of escaping when the door was thrown open in a great hurry, and an elderly gentleman entered, bringing in with him a lady, who certainly could not be considered young. That was a matter of fact, and probably could not be considered handsome, but that was a matter of opinion. She was very straight, very tall, and not at all flexible in face or figure. On her head she wore a great straw bonnet with trimmings of the same, in which she looked as if she had been thatched by an unskilful labourer, and in her hand she held a most enormous fan. "'Mr. Chuzzlewit, I believe,' said the gentleman. "'That is my name.' "'Sir,' said the gentleman, "'I am pressed for time.' "'Thank God,' thought Martin. "'I go back to my home, sir,' pursued the gentleman. "'By the return train which starts immediate.' start is not a word you use in your country sir Oh, yes it is said martin you are mistaken sir returned the gentleman with great decision but we will not pursue the subject lest we should awake your prejudice sir mrs hominy martin bowed mrs hominy sir is the lady of major hominy one of our choicest spirits and belongs to one of our most aristocratic families you are perhaps acquainted sir with mrs hominy's writings martin couldn't say that he was You have much to learn and to enjoy, sir," said the gentleman. Mrs. Hominy is going to stay until the end of the fall, sir, with her married daughter at the settlement of New Thermopylae, three days this side of Eden. Any attention, sir, that you can show to Mrs. Hominy upon the journey will be very grateful to the major and our fellow citizens. Mrs. Hominy, I wish you good-night, ma'am, and a pleasant progress on your route. Martin could scarcely believe it, but he had gone, and Mrs. Hominy was drinking the milk almost used up i am i do declare she observed the jolting in the cars is pretty nigh as bad as if the rail were full of snags and sawyers snags and sawyers ma'am said martin well then i do suppose you'll hardly realise what i am meaning sir said mrs hominy my only think do tell it did not appear that these expressions although they seemed to conclude with an urgent entreaty stood in need of any answer for mrs hominy untying her bonnet-strings observed that she withdraw to lay that article of dress aside and would return immediately mark said martin touch me will you am i awake hominy is sir returned his partner broad awake just the sort of woman sir as would be discovered with her eyes wide open and her mind a working for a country's good at any hour of the day or night they had no opportunity of saying more for mrs hominy stalked in again very erect in proof of her aristocratic blood and holding in her clasped hands a red cotton pocket handkerchief, perhaps a parting gift from that choice spirit, the Major. She had laid aside her bonnet, and now appeared in a highly aristocratic and classical cap, meeting beneath her chin a style of headdress so admirably adapted to her countenance that if the late Mr. Grimaldi had appeared in the lappets of Mrs. Siddons, a more complete effect would not have been produced. Martin handed her to a chair her first words arrested him before he could get back to his own seat pray sir said mrs hominy where do you hail from i am afraid i am of dull comprehension answered martin being extremely tired but upon my word i don't understand you mrs hominy shook her head with a melancholy smile that said not inexpressively they corrupt even the language in that old country and added then as coming down a step or two to meet his low capacity where was you rose Oh, said Martin, I was born in Kent. And how do you like our country, sir? asked Mrs. Hominy. Very much indeed, said Martin, half asleep. At least, that is pretty well, ma'am. Most strangers, and particularly Britishers, are much surprised by what they see in the United States, remarked Mrs. Hominy. They have excellent reason to be so, ma'am, said Martin. I never was so much surprised in all my life. Our institutions make our people smart much, sir, Mrs. Hominy remarked. The most short-sighted man could see that at a glance with his naked eye," said Martin. Mrs. Hominy was a philosopher and an authoress, and consequently had a pretty strong digestion. But this coarse, this indecorous phrase, was almost too much for her, for a gentleman sitting alone with a lady, although the door was open, to talk about a naked eye, a long interval elapsed before even she, woman of masculine and tiring intellect though she was, could call up fortitude enough to resume the conversation. But Mrs. Hominy was a traveller, Mrs. Hominy was a writer of reviews and analytical disquisitions. Mrs. Hominy had had her letters from abroad, beginning, My ever dearest blank, and signed, The mother of the modern Gracchi, meaning the married Miss Hominy, regularly printed in a public journal, with all the indignation in capitals, and all the sarcasm in italics, Mrs. Hominy had looked on foreign countries with the eye of a perfect Republican hot from the model oven, and Mrs. Hominy could talk or write about them by the hour together. So Mrs. Hominy at last came down on Martin heavily, and as he was fast asleep she had it all her own way, and bruised him to her heart's content. It is no great matter what Mrs. Hominy said, save that she had learnt it from the cant of a class, and a large class, of her fellow-countrymen who in their every word avow themselves to be as senseless to the high principles on which America sprang, a nation into life as any Orson in her legislative halls, who are no more capable of feeling, or of caring if they did feel, that by reducing their own country to the ebb of honest men's contempt, they put in hazard the rights of nations yet unborn, and very progress of the human race, than are the swine who wallow in their streets. Who think that, crying out to other nations, old in their iniquity, we are no worse than you, no worse, is high defence and advantage ground enough for that Republic? But yesterday let her loose upon her noble course, and but to-day so maimed and lame, so full of sores and ulcers, foul to the eye, and almost hopeless to the sense, that her best friends turned from the loathsome creature with disgust who having by their ancestors declared and won their independence, because they would not bend the knee to certain public vices and corruptions, and would not abrogate the truth, run riot in the bad, and turn their backs upon the good, and lying down contented with the wretched boast that other temples also are of glass, and stones which batter theirs may be flung back, show themselves in that alone as immeasurably behind the import of the trust they hold and as unworthy to possess it as if the sordid hucksterings of all their little governments each one a kingdom in its small depravity were brought into a heap for evidence against them martin by degrees became so far awake that he had a sense of a terrible oppression on his mind an imperfect dream that he had murdered a particular friend and couldn't get rid of the body when his eyes opened it was staring him full in the face there was the horrible hominy talking deep truths in a melodious snuffle, and pouring forth her mental endowments to such an extent that the Major's bitterest enemy, hearing her, would have forgiven him from the bottom of his heart. Martin might have done something desperate if the gong had not sounded for supper, but sound it did most opportunely, and having stationed Mrs. Hominy at the upper end of the table, he took refuge at the lower end himself, whence, after a hasty meal, he stole away or the lady was yet busied with dried beef and a saucer full of pickled fixings it would be difficult to give an adequate idea of mrs hominy's freshness next day or of the avidity with which she went headlong into moral philosophy at breakfast some little additional degree of asperity perhaps was visible in her features but not more than the pickles would have naturally produced all that day she clung to martin she sat beside him while he received his friends for there was another reception Yet more numerous than the former, propounded theories and answered imaginary objections, so that Martin really began to think he must be dreaming, and speaking for two, she quoted interminable passages from certain essays on government written by herself, used the major's pocket-handkerchief as if the snuffle were a temporary malady, of which she was determined to rid herself by some means or other, and, in short, was such a remarkable companion that martin quite settled it between himself and his conscience that in any new settlement it would be absolutely necessary to have such a person knocked on the head for the general peace of society in the meantime mark was busy from early in the morning until late at night in getting on board the steamboat such provisions tools and other necessaries as they had been forewarned it would be wise to take the purchase of these things and the settlement of their bill at the national reduced their finances to so low an ebb that if the captain had delayed his departure any longer they would have been in almost as bad a plight as the unfortunate poorer immigrants who seduced on board by solemn advertisement had been living on the lower deck a whole week and exhausting their miserable stock of provisions before the voyage commenced there they were all huddled together with the engine and the fires farmers who had never seen a plough woodmen who had never used an axe builders who couldn't make a box, cast out of their own land with not a hand to aid them, newly come into an unknown world, children in helplessness but men in wants, with younger children at their backs, to live or die as it might happen. The morning came and they would start at noon, noon came and they would start at night, but nothing is eternal in this world, not even the procrastination of an American skipper, and at night all was ready dispirited and weary to the last degree, but a greater lion than ever. He had done nothing all the afternoon but answer letters from strangers, half of them about nothing, half about borrowing money, and all requiring an instantaneous reply. Martin walked down to the wharf through a concourse of people, with Mrs. Hominy upon his arm, and went on board. But Mark was bent on solving the riddle of this lionship, if he could and so, not without the risk of being left behind, ran back to the hotel. Captain Kedgick was sitting in the colonnade, with a julep on his knee, and a cigar in his mouth. He caught Mark's eye, and said, "'Why, what the tunnel brings you here?' "'I'll tell you plainly what it is, Captain,' said Mark. "'I want to ask you a question.' "'A man may ask a question, so he may,' returned Kedgick, strongly implying that another man might not answer a question, so he mightn't. What have they been making so much of him for now?" said Mark, slyly. Come. our people like excitement? answered Kedgick, sucking his cigar. But how has he excited em? asked Mark. The captain looked at him as if he were half inclined to unburden his mind of a capital joke. You are going? he said. Going? cried Mark. Ain't every moment precious. "Our people like excitement? said the captain, whispering. He ain't like emigrants in general and he excited him along o this he winked and burst into a smothered laugh along o this Scadder is a smart man and as nobody goes to eden ever comes back alive the wharf was close at hand and at that instant mark could hear them shouting out his name he could even hear martin calling to him to make haste or they would be separated it was too late to mend the matter or put any face upon it but the best he gave the captain a parting benediction and ran off like a race-horse. "'Mark! Mark!' cried Martin. "'Here I am, sir,' shouted Mark, suddenly replying from the edge of the quay, and leaping at a bound on board. "'Never was half so jolly, sir. All right, all in. Go ahead.' The sparks from the wood-fire streamed upward from the two chimneys, as if the vessel were a great firework just lighted, and they roared away upon the dark water. End of Chapter 22